know, we have ladies and gentlemen, we are live. Well, not quite live. Um, (laughs) We're not live. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, we are not live. Um, (laughs) There's your third podcast, the not live libertarian. (laughs) There's like the fact as live. And then there's no real libertarian, not live. You remember live. the, the <laughs> Fatcast Live? Where, okay, so the, I guess I can finally break the story on the Fatcast Live. What was oh, that? Oh, yes, please All do. Right, so th- th- one day we forgot to record. <laughs> and <laughs> normally we record on Tuesdays, but we all forgot to record. And then we didn't. We realized we didn't have any b- episodes in the bank afterwards. Oh, Christ. So on Wednesday, we looked at one another and we were like, okay, we got to put an episode out tomorrow, like do this as soon as possible. And so we had to give an excuse as to why we were late. And it's because, and we made up the idea that we created a live show so that, <laughs> so that we could pretend it did in fact air on Wednesdays and that everybody listening on Thursdays was actually the doofus for not paying for the live episodes. That was holy shit. And I don't know oh, if that ever, genius. I don't know if anybody ever caught on to that, but it did the job. <laughs> oh God, yeah, that's right. Fagcast Live. I we should do a couple more of those. Like, <laughs> we, we had several people like message us and be like, "How do I sign up for like the live? How much is it?" <laughs> like, uh, I'll get back to you on that. We'll get back to you on it. You're actually supposed to find it yourself. We tried to make it like an Easter egg hunt. <laughs> and we got other people into it who were like, "Yeah, man, you're not in. I thought you were in. You got to go find that link. It's somewhere on the website." <laughs> I don't think anybody ended up looking. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah, that's that's the exact kind of chaos creation I would expect from you. Yeah, yeah, I do that a lot, and I like I <laughs> I don't know. I get off on it. I get off on the idea that like I create chaos, and one person picks up a message and they message me like, "Did you mean this?" And I was like, "Yes, I did." Uh, <laughs> like uh i think i described this on somebody else's show but my latest uh trance into uh chaos is i do two things lately um i'll take song lyrics specifically i've done uh the cure and i'll take song lyrics and i'll replace one word with the word bone you know like in your <laughs> body a bone and i don't and i don't know why i just do it and it took weeks for someone to notice <laughs> that i was that I was doing that and before anybody acknowledged it at least. And then the second thing I did was then this is pure madness. I, uh, there is a hidden code, uh, in the, in, in a, in a period of messages of mine, I think that ended last week. It was like, great. There was one word, uh, that corresponded with a particular number in each tweet that put out a secret message. That is not an important message at all. Uh, but you know, we'll see. So, uh, I do all kinds and nobody will ever know half of this shit, but it's okay. Because to me, like I get the satisfaction of putting it out there and if anybody, (laughs) that's even better. So, oh yes. And the other thing is I will wait. Sometimes I wake up to pee at four in the morning and I make sure, and I'm, and whenever I wake up, I'm in a complete dazed state. Like you can't talk to me. I will not remember it when I actually wake up. I can't communicate. I just like, like a zombie. Um, but I do, re- I can remember to do things. So one thing I remember to do is to, uh, compose a tweet. And so I'll always compose a tweet and then I'll put the timestamp next to it, but then I'll erase the timestamp and just post it randomly on the internet, maybe the next day or a week from them. And it has gotten some really strange results. My, when I'm like 
only at one third awake and I'm walking around like at four 30 in the morning and I tweet, it's yeah. bizarre. Some things that come out of bizarre. And you would, the funny thing is uh, I'll tweet that like something composed at that period of time at like noon 30 the next day where it doesn't fit at all. And people are like, what is this? <laughs> like, okay, <laughs> so here's one. So here's one I did on my public account just to give you a look into the madness on the 28th of August, I tweeted, you got to vote for one. And it's a picture of Donald Trump, John McCain, Hillary Clinton, and Barack Obama. And I put a bunch of emojis over all of them. <laughs> and well, I made them very strange looking. Uh, I'll send it to you in the Zencaster chat. Bullshito. But for all the listeners, just go oh, back holy to shit. the 28th. You There's vote. a Zencaster chat. Yeah, there is. I didn't you know? even know that. Very great. It's a great thing. <laughs> yeah, I composed and actually you timestamp Placido. It's twelve thirty one PM. What did I say? <laughs> uh, yeah. So, oh well. So this I composed this at like four in the morning. I put yeah. this Yeah. Oh, that's it, beautiful. Uh, that's the kind of stuff that I get up to these days on Twitter because I'm f- I'm a free man. I don't believe in politics anymore. I don't think we can win. I don't think we yeah. can even lose. I just think we exist. And so to that end, I think we should just try and destroy the very meaning of a, of existence and make it absolutely absurd. Is my point. It's what I'm going to try and do on Twitter at least. Um, yeah. I, uh, I have been on a somewhat similar <laughs> journey. <laughs> yeah, of course. I, I have still gotten dragged down into arguing about useless bullshit with people every now uh, and then. The, the classic. Uh, Yes, but I have been more and more on an anti-politics, anti-reading, anti-thinking campaign. Very good. Um, Very good. Fuck reading. Reading is for nerds. Just drink, work, and like die at 40. <laughs> and there's the plan. And there it is. Ladies <laughs> and, gentlemen. and speaking of that lifestyle, which is very European, by the way. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> let's talk about the group of people who would probably best uh, embody that lifestyle, the Russian folk. Um, let us begin. Do you like that little turn? Of course you do. Uh, let's do some recapping first. Uh, and I'm doing this off memory because once again, I didn't do my, di- my due diligence and look back. He said, uh, by it, the way, it, it, uh, we are recording on a Saturday and he told me he would have his shit ready by Monday. So, you know. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I, no. Yeah. I just, <laughs> I can't, I don't like listening to myself, so I'll never go back and do that. But here's what I, I recall. And episode one. Uh, and the times are important. We basically covered eh, 1862 is the first date we would have talked about, but we basically cover about 1891, 96, 1905. That's about where we ended on the first episode. What we talked about basically was the Romanov family. Uh, we talked about Nicholas specifically, how he came to the throne, what kind of a person he was. Uh, we talked about his family. We talked about uh, the brewing dissent in 1905. Uh, we talked about the 1905 revolution, the first revolution in Russian history where, well, actually the second technically, but the first major one in Russian history where the Tsardom was forced to capitulate terms to the peasantry. Second episode, we came in blazing. We started talking politics uh, we, uh, we were, we were, uh, embattled in world war one throughout most of that episode, the Japanese and the Russians were going at it. The Germans and the Russians were going at it. Germanophobia, if you'll recall, was being stoked all over the place. People were going crazy. 
Germanophobia uh, is a good thing, though. <laughs> a distrust, a general distrust at the very least. Uh, we talked about the Odessa steps, how many people died there. Uh, we talked about uh, uh, the mutiny aboard the uh, the Navy vessel. We talked about, all right. We talked about all kinds of stuff. Now, what was the thing that we ended on in part two was the czar is slowly beginning to realize that not only are things out of control, but that they are out of control in an uncontrollable way. Russia had been out of control several times before. Uh, a so-called anarchic people, as was uh, uh, referred to by the entire dynasty, as well as uh, people like, you know, your boy, the magician Rasputin. Everybody referred to the Russians as like very anarchic people. And this is uh, really starting to show its head in uh, what we're going to talk about today. So again, dates are important. In the first episode, we basically talked 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, all the way to 1905. Big span of time. Second episode, we basically talked about 1905 to 1917, smaller but still pretty big span of time. And then this episode, we're basically going to talk about the years 1917 and 1918. <laughs> so uh, to give you uh, an idea of the, well, the 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 uh, amount of shit that is going to go on in this year. Yes. Um, you'll hear some names uh, yeah. that you're, you're finally finally want to hear names of uh <laughs> lenin comes up in fact lenin is the star of this episode trotsky does not come up too much although in passing kerensky comes up a little bit stalin comes up a little bit but of course we'll get to all those characters later what we really want to get to is lenin who lenin was why lenin wasn't in russia during most of this stuff and why we didn't talk about him what he was doing and how he got back there and what he was responsible for doing when he immediately got back there. We're not going to be talking about, you know, how the Bolsheviks come to power, the Bolshevik Revolution. We're still in the Russian Revolution, because I promised you we'd be talking about the Russian Revolution, not the Bolshevik Revolution. But we can yes. do that after, uh, unless we have 25 bonus episodes we need to get to. But <laughs> uh, this may be the third of four episodes, I think. I think a fourth episode will be exactly what we need to close out the Russian portion of this revolution. Um but let's begin. So uh, with well, that, we, well, we, we, we wait, ahead. wait, wait. Uh, oh. Before we begin, I okay. would like to uh, request an early uh, piss and beer break. Oh, okay. Of course. While you do that, I wasn't actually even done. I, I, I forgot a whole thing. So I'm going to talk. And then when I'm done talking, I'll just pause and you can, you can <laughs> edit right. or I'll edit it out. So I'm going to keep going. There is actually right. one thing uh, other that I had forgotten to mention was that where we basically had ended was, if you'll remember, uh, uh, Dmitry Rojanko uh, assumes control of the transportation department as the czar is on his way back to uh, Petrograd uh, upon being coaxed to come back. Uh, he is intercepted along the way because he finds out that his old enemy, Rojanko, has taken control of the transit lines, which means, number one, control over the trains, and number two, control over the telegraph lines. So this is something the Tsar recognizes cannot happen. And so what he does instead is that he, he contradicts Rojanko's orders to take the train directly to Sarskoselo, which is in St. Petersburg. Sarskoselo is his uh, capital castle 
Uh, instead, he says, no, 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 take me to Skov, uh, a, a town pretty far to the south. I think I remembered I showed Bushido the map. Um, if you want to look at it right now to get your bearings of, of what's going on in the places where we're at, go to Google Maps and search P-S-K-O-V for Skov and look at it in relation to St. Petersburg, which is Petrograd. We'll be referred to as Petrograd for most of this. And uh, Moscow, which is obviously... I think somewhere between the two of them, slightly off to the east, but I could be wrong about that. So that's where we are. Czar is in Skov because he found out Dmitry Rojanko takes over the uh, transportation lines. He says, no way, buddy. And he goes to a different castle. <clears throat> and that's where we are at. All right. Perfect. Okay. That was fast. Good for you. So you peed and got a beer in that time? That was really good. Ah. <laughs> uh. I'm still pouring it, but yes. Okay, fair enough. All right. So, <clears throat> and again, Bullshito, bear with me because I'll probably have to edit a lot of this because I'm, this is a lot of info with lots of names. Okay. <laughs> so, <At me. laughs> outside Petrograd, uh, the revolution's impact was at first muted. Uh, not even in Moscow, which was the unofficial capital of liberal political intrigue between 1915 and 16. There was so much sympathy as uh, there, there wasn't even so much sympathy as a demonstration until the 28th of February. Rajanko's coup at the transportation ministry that day and General Alexiev's failure to contest it was therefore a decisive step. Uh, not only could Rajanko now route and reroute trains, he could shape public opinion across the country throughout the telegraph wires. As soon as the news about the revolution goes national, the revolution goes national too. So, as far as the Russian military goes, they're in the middle of a world war, and there's 7 million active duty personnel at the front with several million more in reserve in the rear. The first serious disturbance outside of the capital occurs predictably in a naval squadron in Kronstadt, where sailors and soldiers, uh, who are both housed on an island, several regiments of them, could literally see the fires raging in Petrograd, only 20 miles away. Quote, disorders were, rep were reported at Kronstadt as early as Tuesday, the 28th of February, when dock workers uh, began a strike and sailors abandoned their training courses. A revolutionary tribunal is set up in Anchor Square, and death sentences are pronounced to 24 officers, with another 162 sentenced to detention by their men. The violence begins to reach its apogee on Wednesday afternoon of March 1st, when the hated Admiral Viren was bayoneted to death. So similar dynamics are at play in the army, not just the navy, where General Ruski's northern army, which is nearest to Petrograd, was the first to be infected by the revolution. In the 5th army, which uh, censors were beginning to report morale was superlative, was quickly changing as men learned of the revolution in Petrograd. Officers reported being gloomy, uh, complaining that troops no longer obeyed their orders. And among other men, a gung-ho mood between January and February had begun to collapse in days. In fact, in six days between the 1st and 7th, when everything suddenly became war-weary and talk of peace began. In Galicia, the impact of the revolution was muted almost entirely because this was such an active war theater the men were too busy to pay attention to local political developments in Petrograd. And in Lutsk, for example, a more pressing concern was the offensive of Austro-Germans, which was now buttressed by an Ottoman expeditionary force, and that was expected to begin any day, especially now that news of, quote, serious disorders in Petrograd will have reached the enemy. 
So, you got a lot of things going on right now. Russians and Ottomans and Germans are all starting to notice, uh-oh, there's a big problem going on in the Russian home front. The same theme is visible on the, among the Ottoman fronts where the Russians were unambiguously victorious in 1916 and were still planning to be victorious in 1917. Uh, but, lo but certain battles uh, were lost. 35 Russian soldiers were lost. 60 more were wounded in a battle in Galicia and it pulled a lot of the troops back into their uh, prior trenches. Uh, it is important to remember uh, and to keep in mind the strategic picture uh, when we evaluate the decisions that were taken by the high command in the early days of the revolution, when Russia's political fate was still being decided. General Alexiev's first priority of plan was to keep frontline troops from being infected by politics. But he was not thinking about mere survival. He actually believed Russia was still primed to win the war. Believing that the Duma president, Rajanko, had the situation under control, Alexiev called off the putative expedition to Petrograd. They were going to send the military in, and he informed General Ivanov, the guy who would be in control of the regiment, that negotiations will lead to pacification, and so that the shameful civil strife for which our enemies longs will be avoided. Early on March 1st, with the Tsar on route to Skov, Alexiev wired General Ruski to expect Rajanko too. Information received, he told uh, Ruski, gives us reason to hope that Duma deputies led by Rojanko will still be able to halt the general disintegration and that it will be possible to work with them. Any delay in reaching a settlement, however, might open the door for the seizure of power by, quote, extreme leftist elements. Well, the meetings began, Rojanko arrived, and Rojanko had already begun to cede control to those leftist elements as Alexiv feared. In one of the decisive encounters on a night in February of the 27th and 28th, Rajanko demanded that the members of the Duma committee follow his instructions, not only to publicly, uh, and this was not only publicly rebuked by Kerensky, who was a rapidly emerging radical tribune of the Soviet, the self-appointed body of radical socialists meeting in rooms 12 and 13 of the Tarita Palace. The socialist revolutionaries, sometimes I'll call them SRs, the order, had developed a popular rapport with soldiers outside of Tarita, whom he often harangued with great effect. Uh, he addressed them not as mutineers, but as heroes, whom he asked to defend their freedom, the revolution, and the state Duma. So now, Kerensky and Rajanko are already beginning to clash. And Kerensky, who had made it a point of protecting many czarist officials from mob lynchings by arresting them in the Tarita, was far more was was one of the least radical of the members of the Soviets. Right. So, contrary to what we might have expected from a body dominated by Mensheviks and so Soviet revolutionaries, the Soviet news sheet Isvestia was tinged with Bolshevik influence from the outset, and this was because it was edited by a close friend of Vladimir Lenin's, Vladimir Bonchbruevich. And as of early February twenty seventh. Bonch Bruevich seized control of a printing press previously used by a lowbrow popular daily newspaper and offered its use to the Soviet. It was Bonch Bruevich who, who published the Itzesvia on March 1st, the instructions uh, from the Soviet to the Petrograd army garrison, which was written up the previous day mostly by the Menshevik lawyer N.D. Sokolov, who became known to history, uh, or rather this became known to history as Order Number 1. So although the flood of subsequent editions makes it difficult to determine exactly what the original version of the order stated, the first two clauses were clear enough. They were this. They instructed soldiers in Petrograd to elect committees and send deputies to the Petrograd Soviet. 
to forestall a counter-revolutionary push by officers against mutineers, the new soldiers' committees were instructed to seize control of weapons and ammunition. Officers were also forbidden to address their men with the informal U, T instead of V, while men would also no longer be required to salute their superiors. Order number one was addressed specifically and meant only to apply to the Petrograd garrison and not to Russian armed forces as a whole, and certainly not to the frontline troops. But news of it was immediately sent out over telegraph wires, and by March 2nd, thousands of copies had been printed for distribution across the country. Subtleties of wording and jurisdiction aside, a radical sailor present at Torita Palace when it was being hashed out captured its likely impact when he remarked, quote, Educated folk will read it differently, but we understood it straight. Disarm the officers. Events in Petrograd were now moving at a bewildering pace. Monday the 27th had seen the creation of the Soviet and Rajanko's Provisional Duma Committee. Since the Tsar had already left Magilev, which is the city he goes to uh, before he goes to Skov, early on Tuesday morning, the last bastions of the old regime had already fallen in Petrograd. A number of army training units stationed near the capital, including the 1st and 2nd machine gun regiments in a, in a name I'm not even going to pronounce, Oraniembaum, <laughs> and the 2nd... Oh. And the, it's, it's, it's insane. I can't tell if it's German or Latin or Russian. Oraniembaum. And the 2nd Artillery Division in Strelna had left their barracks and marched to Petrograd to join the revolution. By the time the Tsar arrived in Skov on Wednesday morning, March 1st, Order Number 1 had already been promulgated, although it had not yet reached frontline troops, and Moscow was following the capital into revolution, with the general strike in factories and mutiny in the garrison. In Mogilev, Alexeyev was more on top of events than Nicholas, but he was still struggling to keep up. At 3 p.m. on Wednesday, March 1st, Alexeyev composed a message to his sovereign, although it did not reach the latter in Skov until nearly 11 p.m. In it, Alexeyev warned that the Tsar that, quote, Disorders in the rear will produce the same result among the armed forces. It is impossible to ask the army calmly to wage war while a revolution is in progress in the rear. To, quote, halt the general collapse and, quote, reestablish order, Alexiev ordered Nick, or Alexiev informed Nicholas that a draft manifesto had been prepared for him by the Tsar's diplomatic aide-de-camp at Stavka, Nicholas de Basile, which announced to the public uh, a calming message to, quote, solidify all forces in the nation. The Tsar, quote, considered it his duty to appoint a ministry responsible to the representatives of the people and ensure the president of the Duma, Rojanko, to form it with the help of persons possessing the confidence of all Russia. That's what the message said. In effect of Alexei, the effect of Alexei's message on Tsar Nicholas must have been shattering. Compounding the effect, three more wires reached Skov in support of Alexei's line, one from the Tsar's first cousin, Grand Duke Sergei Mikhailovich, who is an inspector of the artillery, uh, one from General Brusilov, who is a hero of the Galician offensive in 1916, and a third from Admir Admiral Nepenin in, Helen in Helsinki, oh my god, these names, uh, who all but begged the sovereign to salvage what remained of the military discipline through the supreme act of abdication. It was Alexiev's telegram that broke down the Tsar's resistance once he realized that High Command had turned against him. And it was a fateful decision which might have easily gone any other way, and there was a critical accident in timing. Ruski and Alexiev convinced the Tsar to surrender his authority to Rajanko at midnight on March 1st and 2nd of 1917. 
Several hours before, Rajanko, in a phone conversation with Rudsky, confessed his own inability to rule Tarita Palace, let alone Petrograd and Russia. Had Rusky spoken to Rajanko earlier in the evening, it is possible that he would have advised his sovereign very differently after realizing that the entire premise of Alexiev's manifesto was mistaken. The revelation about the impotence of, quote, fat Rajanko, as Nicholas would refer to him, would not have surprised uh, Nicholas, who had initially refused to sign it, according to Rusky, because of his low opinion of, quote, the people who claimed to enjoy the nation's confidence. Still, it was not too late to head off disaster. Although the Tsar had agreed to let Rajanko form a government, he had not yet given up his throne. Once he learned more about the true situation in Petrograd, he might even change his mind about the Basili Manifesto, which had not yet been made public. The Duma president was so unsure of himself when Rusky asked him at 7 a.m. on March 2nd whether or not High Command should still publish the manifesto in which the Tsar had entrusted him with forming a new parliamentary government. Rajanko could only mumble, quote, I really don't know what to say. Everything depends on events, which are developing at hair-raising speed. The Tsar bowing out and Rajanko falling apart in Petrograd, uh, General Alexei takes matters into his own hands. At 10.15 a.m. on March 2nd, the acting commander-in-chief wired to all Army and Navy front commanders that, quote, The war can be continued to a victorious end only if requests for the Emperor's abdication in his son's favor with Grand Duke Michael serving as regent are satisfied. The situation apparently does not permit any alternative solution. The army must fight the external enemy with all its strength, while the decision on internal affairs will spare it the temptation to play a part in a coup d'etat, which will be less painful if effected from above. In this extraordinary telegram, Alexiev outsmarts himself. By advocating Rajanko's old plan for the Tsar's abdication, he made a decisive political intervention on behalf of the armed forces. By demanding, quote, unity of thought and purpose among the high commanders of the armies, quote, in a telegram, he knew Nicholas would read, he was reassuring and pressuring the Tsar that abdicating his throne was out of a sense of patriotism, while disingenuously avowing that the army would remain above politics, of course. Like Rajanko, Alexei wanted a political situation without the burden of political responsibility, so in effect he was asking the Tsar to sacrifice himself so as to save the army from sullying itself with politics. It was fitting that on the same day Alexiev demanded his abdication, uh, Nicholas visit, was visited by an old friend of Alexiev, the Octoberist arch-plotter Alexander Guchkov. As Rajanko refused to go to Skov, uh, the task was left to the old conspirator, Guchkov, who had asked for a volunteer to accompany him. As the other Duma men were no more enthusiastic than Rajanko, Guchkov was accompanied by an obscure deputy from Kiev named V.V. Shulgin. Just before 3 p.m. on March 2nd, the two men boarded the train for Skov. Arriving at 9 o'clock that night, uh, Rajanko had requested to see Duma deputies before they met the Tsar. It was already so late that everybody simply gathered in Nicholas's train suite in Skov uh, and got on with it. If any politician seemed poised uh, to seize the moment, it had to be Guchkov. So for two years he had been plotting the Tsar's downfall, and now he was handed a golden opportunity to finish him off in person. And yet, in truth, the old Octoberist was no less, uh, the old Octoberist, uh, no less than a sovereign he despised, had been overtaken by the events out of his control. Guchkov had played little role in the Petrograd street disturbances, and whatever he was, he was no mutineer and was genuinely shocked by the bloodshed. While Guchkov addressed troops earlier that morning, one of his close friends had been shot to death standing right next to him. 
clearly shaken, Guchkov declined to take over the war ministry. He arrived in Pskov uh, unshaved, disheveled, and out of sorts. And he pleads with the Tsar, more in sorrow than anger, to help stop the spread of the anarchy. Quote, All of the workers and soldiers who took part in the riots, Guchkov exclaimed, are firmly convinced that retention of the old regime would mean the summary justice for them, and this is why we need radical change. What Guchkov needed, Guchkov argued, was, quote, crack, cracking down the whip of public imagination. Not only the Tsar's abdication, but the appointment of a government headed by Prince Lvov, who was the head of the Zemgor and a fellow Masonic plotter, and not Rajanko, who the Tsar had already delegated authority. Stubborn to the end, Nicholas deprived his enemy of the satisfaction he craved. Calmly, he informed Guchkov that earlier he had already decided to abdicate in favor of his son, Alexei, with Grand Duke Michael as regent. He had now changed his mind and would not do so, instead passing on the throne directly to Michael so he could remain with his son, after being consulted by a doctor that Alexei's hemophilia was uncurable. In the final act of abdication signed 11.50 p.m. on March 2nd, but backdated to 3.05 p.m. to make it seem like it had not been coerced, Nicholas passed the Romanov throne to his brother Michael, in agreement with the state Duma, in quotes. Significantly, the abdication was addressed not to Guchkov or Rajanko as representatives of the Duma, but to General Alexiev, that is, to the army. In spite of the anticlimactic atmosphere in Skov, the abdication was a momentous event in Russian history but its consequences were far from those desired by the men who argued for it. Guchkov had been onto something when he suggested that bringing a formal end to the regime would reassure mutinous soldiers afraid of summary justice, but in rewarding the immunity to mutineers, he should have realized, was not a recipe for restoring military discipline. Alexiev had second thoughts almost immediately. Rather than help Alexiev restore discipline in the armies, the abdication would make its, the task seem virtually impossible. Every officer, every soldier, every sailor in Russia, all nine million of them, plus all the military personnel, the reserves, and the training units, all swore allegiance to Nicholas. And now that Russia's sovereign was no more, to whom or what would they swear an oath? The first and most obvious answer was to Michael Romanov, the man whom Nicholas had abdicated to. If anyone was responsible for putting Michael's name forward in the first place, it was Rajanko, a man who no longer inspired confidence. As soon as Rajanko learned of the Tsar's abdication at 5 a.m. on March 3rd, he called General Rusky in Skov and demanded that the abdication manifesto not be published. The crowds of Tarita, he claimed, quote, perhaps reconcile themselves to the regency of a Grand Duke, but his ascension as emperor would be completely unacceptable. Into the political cauldron, Duke Michael was now hurled. A shy and retiring man who'd never expected or wanted to rule Russia, he had suddenly become the most important man in Russia, guarded in his temporary quarters. At 10 a.m. on March 3rd, a Duma delegation arrived headed by Rajanko, Lvov, Milyukov, and Kerensky. Guchkov had been delayed at the railway station. Uh, arrived, they all arrived, and according to Milyukov's account, Rajanko was, quote, in a blue funk, and all the others, too, were all, quote, frightened by what was happening. But everyone bowed to Rajanko's rank and they left him alone with the Grand Duke. Convincing Michael to decline the throne was not difficult. In his own act of abdication dated March 3rd, Grand Duke Michael states that he had been asked to assume the heavy burden of the imperial throne of all the Russias at a time of unprecedented warfare and popular disturbances. 
gamely, he declared himself willing to assume supreme power, but, quote, only in the event that such is the will of our great people, upon whom it, dis uh, upon whom it devolves by a general vote through their representatives in the new constituent assembly to determine the form of government and all the new fundamental laws of the Russian state. Until then, Michael asked, quote, all citizens of the Russian state to pay allegiance to the provisional government, which has come into being at the initiative of the state Duma, which is empowered, which is endowed with its full power. Whether or not Russian troops would obey this mysterious new provisional government, which was referred to by Michael, was an open question. For whom, if not an emperor, who would the men fight? Many generals, such as Alexiev, Brusilov, and Kornilov, were popular among their men, but then Alexiev, to forestall a civil war, had forsworn army intervention in politics, even while asking the Tsar to abdicate, summoning front commanders to Mogilev and issuing a new order on March 3rd, which was titled Number 1925, that warned officers not to allow revolutionary gangs from Petrograd to infect them, their own units with defeatism. On March 2nd, an order had been sent from Stavka asking the front commanders to obey their new commander-in-chief, Grand Duke Nicholas. But this was complicated by the announcement of Grand Duke Michael's abdication on March 3rd, f uh, forwarded to front commanders at 2 a.m. on March 4th, which asked soldiers to transfer allegiance to the provisional government. And it wasn't until March 5th that most frontline soldiers learned of a second and final Romanov abdication. Meanwhile, Grand Duke Nicholas, namely commander-in-chief by a sovereign now twice removed from power, was on train was on a train en route to Magalev that very day when a vigorous protest erupted from the Petrograd Soviet over his appointment. Control over the Russian armed forces was basically up for grabs at this point, and on March 4th, Guchkov, who had recovered his nerve and assumed the dual titles of both war minister and naval minister of the provisional government, issued an order to the army and fleet to unite behind his new regime and, quote, break the resistance of the enemy. Next day, uh, Rojanko issues an order demanding very much the same thing, obedience to the provisional committee of the members of the state Duma, insisting, quote, each soldier, officer, and sailor calmly does his duty. Forwarding this message to all front commanders on March 6th, Alexiev issues uh, a signed order numbered 1998 that appears to affirm the authority of the president of the state Duma, Rojanko. While the politicians sorted out who was in charge, frontline soldiers began forming their own committees along the lines of Order 1. Although a follow-up Order Number 2, co-signed by Guchkov for the Provisional Government and Skabalev for the Soviet, wired to Stavka on March 5th, clarified that Order Number 1 was only meant to apply to the rear guard Petrograd garrison, Order Number 1 was so much more widely publicized than the retraction that Order Number 2, as soon as Alexei had complained about he Alexei actually complained about it that it might as well had never have existed. Order number two certainly did not come through enough for Admiral Nepenin in, in Helsinki. At 1.30 a.m. on March 4th, Nepenin wired one final report to the Admiralty on the lynching of five more officers, including two admirals, before he himself was lynched in a brutal fashion, uh, in a gruesome fashion, uh, less than 12 hours later. By the second week of March 1917, the mutinous bloodlust for the Baltic fleet had been finally spent uh, officers with German names mercifully were less numerous in the Baltic fleet and 20 were killed in the first month, which was actually a low number. Kerensky had become an all-purpose troubleshooter at this point, now protecting old regime officials from mob lynchings, haranguing the garrison into obedience, calming mutineers uh, from Moscow to uh, Helsinki, signing on March 12th a decree abolishing the death penalty, appeasing the Soviet, and on March 15th, 
Petrograd's archives were finally reopened under his orders, which was a small but significant display that daily life was finally returning to normal. At the front, too, things were finally slowly settling down. Lynchings in the army were happily less common than in the navy, although many officers were still arrested by their men. Most of the 50-odd army officer victims of February and March 1917 were actually killed in Petrograd. There was a little. There was a noticeable uptick in desertions, with Stavka estimating that frontline divisions lost an average of five to seven men per day in March, and uh, which amounted to just around a hundred thousand men in total, which is a substantial number, but hardly uh, large enough to affect the seven million men being replenished daily on the front. So, despite or perhaps because of the rivers of blood that were spilled by the mutinies in the army barracks and the navy bases in Petrograd, Kronstadt, Helsinki, and Rival. Indeed, the vast majority of the casualties of the February Revolution, which is about 1,300 or 1,400, uh, of which 170 were deaths, were incurred inside military units in the Baltic region. The Russian armed forces had already survived uh, the revolution more or less intact, and this was all to the good, for there was a war on, and the German enemy was moving in for the kill. Uh oh, so here he comes. Dun dun dun. <laughs> I'll get to him <laughs> shortly. Uh, news, oh, yeah. <laughs> news of the February Revolution traveled quickly around the world after Nicholas's abdication, although many details were lost in translation. Nowhere was the news greeted with more enthusiasm than in Washington, D.C., where President <laughs> Woodrow Wilson suddenly faced an urge. Uh, to battle to convince the Congress and the American people for the case for war against Germany. In November of 1916, Wilson had won re-election largely on the boast that he kept us out of the war, only to be shocked by a series of German outrages. Reckoning on possible U.S. intervention after the resumption of restricted, or rather unrestricted, submarine warfare on February 1st of 1917, the Wilhelmstrasse made this all the more likely by dispatching the soon infamous Zimmermann telegram to the German ambassador in Mexico City via a U.S. diplomatic cable. Probably not the best idea. In this explosive document, Berlin promised to support a Mexican reconquista of the American Southwest Texas to Mexico and Arizona if Mexico declared war on the United States. First deciphered by British cryptographers who carefully shared the bombshell with Washington, the Zimmerman telegram was released to the press on February 15th, or February 28th in the Julian calendar, which the Russians are still using, of 1917, just days before the Russian Revolution broke out in Petrograd. The effect of the revolution on the American public was electric. Although the Wilson administration had already severed diplomatic relations with Berlin in early February after the resumption of unrestricted submarine warfare, this fell short of a declaration of war. Wilson, a liberal academic idealist who subscribed to the creed of American exceptionalism, would have never been comfortable plunging the United States into war for traditional reasons of state. Not even the Zimmerman telegram pushed Wilson beyond a stance of armed neutrality. Only after Russia had joined the, quote, liberal democratic camp did Wilson find his inspiration, declaring before a joint session of Congress on March 20th, April 2nd, uh, in the Julian of 1917, that, quote, the world must be made safe for democracy and, quote, peace must be planted upon the tested foundations of political liberty. In Berlin, patriotic journalists tended to emphasize the disorders thrown up by the revolution in Petrograd while downplaying positive news. The Berliner Lokal Anziger ran a banner headline, quote, 
the socialist flood, and the coming anarchy. The Berliner Tageblatt, which I thought this was interesting, Berliner Tageblatt in German means two things. Number one, it means the person from Berlin's day sheet. You know, it's a newspaper you pick up at the daytime. But it also could mean the donut day sheet. So that's pretty cool. Wait. Uh, <laughs> so I guess it's kind of the same idea when you think, you know, you get your donut and your day sheet. I don't know. Maybe that's it was a double entendre. I don't know. Anyway, they had noted with approval that German war prisoners in Russia were being sent home via Stockholm. A Copenhagen rep- uh, correspondent from the Tagenblatt reported a, uh, published a gory account which was titled The Spread of the Bloody Revolution to Finland. From the German point of view, the more chaotic the revolution became, the better. While the Entente observers succumbed to wishful thinking about the impact of the revolution on Russia's warfighting capacity, the darker German accounts, though tinged with their own biases, hewed closer to the truth. Mutinies were spreading through Russia's army and navy, although not without equal effort on all fronts, and anarchy was spreading across the land. Moreover, the Germans, who had agents on the ground in Petrograd and were excellent contacts with Russian revolutionary circles abroad, were ideally positioned to exploit the chaos. The Bolshevik leader had been thus quiet so far, though not uh, all for a lack of trying. Uh, The outbreak of hostilities in August of 1914 saw Lenin in Poronino, near Krakow in Austria. Galicia, close to the, uh, in Austro-Galicia, close to the Russian border, agitating among local Ukrainians. The Krakow police arrested him as an enemy alien until an Austrian socialist leader vouched for Lenin that he was not a czarist spy, but instead a bitter enemy of Russia. So let's talk about uh, Lenin. But give me two minutes before we do that. I'll be right back. I gotta get more water. This is crazy. (laughs) Okay. Ah, I just ate one shrimp. That was very good. (laughs) Just one shrimp. You were saying something? Yes, I was just saying I ate I ate a single shrimp and it was very good. I, why would you eat a single shrimp? Because it's, it's they're not all done yet. <laughs> they're still going. So I just Wait, one. what time is it over there? Uh, four forty-six. Ah, okay, that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, still going, still cooking. All right, let's talk about everybody's favorite soccer like team shrimp. later. Yeah, Send shrimp to me. Sure. Oh, I will do that. <laughs> Do you, eat, do you guys eat shrimp over there, actually, now that I think about it? Is there shrimp over there? We have shrimp. Okay, cool. Very we good. Shrimp. What kind of shrimp? Big. Big, small. Big, never. Very big, very small. Where do you get the shrimp I mean, from? Take a, a three-hour flight and you're in Spain and you get paella. Oh, man. Wow. That sounds good. Well, that's actually what I'm making, so... Well, no, I'm not making it. That's what's being made right now. Very delicious. It's being made. It's being made. Are you, do you have someone cooking for you, Bird? You do. Indeed, I do today. Yes, I do. My lovely Ooh. mother. Shout out to my lovely mother, who is cooking the best paella. Oh. Um, let us talk about everybody's favorite Socrates impersonator. So... <laughs> I, uh, there was so interesting. You should go on when you're off time, everybody listening, uh, marxists.org. Uh, and I don't know, may just Google it, marxist.org, Lenin biographies. And it should take you to a page that's got some portraits of Lenin, biographies of Lenin, uh, interviews with Lenin. And when I say portraits, I mean in the biographical sense, not in the, you know, artistic sense. Um, 
and you get a lot of uh, the Marxist take on Lenin, and you get a lot of um, interviews of Lenin and people's opinions of Lenin from 1918 and 1917, talking about him. Uh, so some just some interesting things I learned that aren't going to be part of his bio. Apparently he had an incredible sense of humor, uh, at least in Marxist oh. day. Uh, which I don't believe, but that's what they say. He, they also say that he had an incredible temper, but it was such an incredible temper that it was almost admirable, which I actually do believe that. <laughs> um, uh, what else did they say about him? Oh, he, uh, he was a strange guy. He was always arguing. He, he never, he, he either wanted people to completely agree with him or completely disagree with him. He didn't like people who stood somewhere in the middle. Uh, <laughs> He, and he was overall just a strange guy. So let's read uh, his uh, bio. So widely you considered... like your average uh, Twitter person. <laughs> oh, and you know what? My I always thought was he would actually probably be great on that platform because it is just arguing the whole time. Oh, yeah. whole time. Uh, widely considered one of the most influential and controversial figures, uh, political figures of the 20th century, and this is not from Marxist.org, because Marxist.org speaks of him in very different terms, as you can imagine. I, again, I encourage people to go to mar- Marxist.org and read the bibliographies that they have, uh, the biographies that they have of him, and then just Google biographies of Lenin, and you will get very different language. Right now, I'm just using what I googled, okay? So this is clearly from the very much the capitalist Western perspective in the way that it speaks about him, which it, they don't do that on Marxist.org. <laughs> uh, widely considered... Alright, one more time. Widely. Well, no, he already is. We already know how wide he is. Uh, he was born Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov on April 22nd. Shout out to April 22nd, the day after my birthday, 1870, in Simbirsk, Russia, which was later renamed Ulyanovsk uh, in his honor. In 1901, he adopted the last name Lenin while he was doing underground party work, which I just love that phrase. His family was well-educated, and Lenin was the third of six children, and he was close to his parents and siblings. School was a central part of Lenin's childhood. His parents, both educated and highly cultured, invoked a passion for learning in their children, especially Vladimir. Uh, A voracious reader, Lenin went on to finish his first high school class and showed a particular gift in Latin and Greek. But not all of life was easy for Lenin and his family. Two situations in particular shaped his life. The first came when Lenin was a boy and his father, an inspector of schools, was threatened with early retirement by a suspicious government nervous about the political influence in public school that he had and that the public schools had on Russian society. The more significant and the more tragic situation came in 1887 when Lenin's older brother Alexander, a university student at the time, was arrested and executed for being part of a group which planned to assassinate Emperor Alexander III. With his father already dead, Lenin became the man of the family. Alexander's involvement in oppositional politics was not an isolated incident for Lenin's family. In fact, all of Lenin's siblings would take part to some degree in the revolution. The year of his brother's execution, Lenin enrolls in Kazan University to study law. His time there was cut short, however, when he, during his first term, was expelled for taking part in a student demonstration. Exiled Exiled to his grandfather's estate in the village of Kokushkino. Come on, guys. Lenin took up residence <laughs> with his sister, Anna, whom police had ordered to live there as a result of her own suspicious activities. This is going to be very funny because a lot of people on uh, the libertarian right are going to hear this uh, 
phrase and go, wait a minute, that sounds familiar, and I'll explain why. Uh, there, Lenin immersed himself in a host of radical literature, including the novel What is to be Done by the great Nikolai Cherskyshevsky. Jesus, <laughs> that's definitely not right. What is to be done is also the name of a Hans Hermann Hoppe um, uh, speech, as well as a, a Lenin book, which I just think is really interesting. And that's not a mistake. You, uh, for a reason. Are you saying that Hans Hermann Hoppe was actually a gummy? Yeah, I think he was. Isn't that known? Wasn't he? For a while? I thought I he mean, was. Dude, you're asking me. German guy I, from the 70s. He had to be. What do right? I know? Radio <laughs> yeah. for nerds. It is for nerds. You're right. <laughs> so Lenin also soaked up the writing of Karl Marx, the German philosopher whose famous book, Das Kapital, overrated, would be a huge impact yes. on <laughs> In January of 1889, Lenin declared himself a Marxist. God, that's lame. Imagine that. <laughs> he would. He'd be the guy on Twitter, right? Who would go, <laughs> nah, you're right, guys. Today I'm a Marxist. And everybody goes, all right, man. You change your political affiliation every two weeks. How about this? Lenin would be the guy that would get absolutely blown the fuck out by Aaron on Twitter. <laughs> Maybe. Well, yes. If it was 2020, yes. <laughs> if it was 1920, I think, I think they'd probably be arguing on the same side, to be honest. <laughs> Eventually, Lenin does receive his law degree and finishes his schoolwork in 1892. He moves to the city of Samara, where his client base was largely composed of Russian peasants. Their struggles against what Lenin saw as a class-based legal system only reinforced his Marxist beliefs. In time, Lenin focused more of his energy on revolutionary politics. He left Samara in the mid-1890s for a new life in St. Petersburg, Russia, which was the capital at the time. And there, Lenin connected with the other like-minded Marxists and began to take an increasingly active role in their activities. But the work did not go unnoticed, and in December of 1895, Lenin and several other Marxist leaders were arrested. Lenin was exiled to Siberia for three years, his fiancée and future wife, Nadezhda Krupskaya joined him. I think I got that one. Following his release from exile and then a stint in Munich, where Lenin and other co others co-founded the newspaper Iskra to unify Russian and European Marxists, he returned to St. Petersburg and stepped up his role and leadership in the revolutionary movement. At the Second Congress of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party in 1903, Lenin forcefully argued for a streamlined party leadership community, one that would lead a network of lower party organizations and their workers. Give us an organization of revolutionaries, Lenin said, and we will overturn Russia. At some point, he finds himself uh, uh, in Switzerland in exile again. <clears throat> and so let's get back to Dang it. it. Len <laughs> Lenin, already on the Austrian radar, came to the attention of the German Foreign Office in 1915 from two independent sources. The first, Alexander Parvis Helphand, different from another Alexander Parvis who we talked about in the last episode. Call him Alexander Helphand or Alexander Parvis if you want. Uh, we have al ha uh, already met and stirred up trouble uh, in Petrograd in 1905. Uh, after escaping from Siberian exile, Parvis had lived a rich and interesting life abroad in Germany and then Turkey. The outbreak of the war found him running a political salon in the Bosphorus for Ukrainian separatists, Armenian and Georgian socialists, and other czarist exiles, in which capacity he requested an audience in January of 1915 with the German ambassador to the Ottoman Empire, Baron Hans von Wangenheim. <laughs> See, at least their names are easy. <laughs> <They're> just... <laughs> oh, von Wangenheim, wow. 
The Ger- the interests it. in the German imperial government, Parvis told Wangenheim, Wangenheim, are identical to those of the Russian revolutionaries. So you can already see this uh, in 1905 already, then 1915, there's already this push to get the Germans to be like, wait, the socialist revolutionaries are actually on our side? Oh, okay. The second intermediary, Alexander Kaskula, was no less colorful. An Estonian Bolshevik who, like Parvis, was a hardened veteran in the 1905 revolution, Kaskula had more recently embraced the full-throttled Estonian nationalism, asked by a Finnish friend what his plans were for the Petrograd, the Petrograd uh, Soviet after Estonia conquered it, <laughs> uh, Kaskula replied that all of its palaces would be made of excellent stone quarry, something that Estonia is known for. Uh, Kaskula's motivation for going to work for German intelligence in uh, September of 1914, as he later recalled, was simple. Quote, hatred for Russia. In September of 1915, Kaskula informed the German consul in Bern, Gisbert von Romberg, of Lenin's views and ideological outlook. Romberg thereafter paid Kaskula 20,000 marks for a, a month to distribute Lenin and the other Bolsheviks. In view of Lenin's position on the war, which he outlined as socialist eg- in which he outlined at socialist exile congresses in Zimmerwald and Kaithal, it is not hard to see why the German Foreign Office cultivated him. Whereas the majority of these gatherings supported the re- resolutions penned by Trotsky, who is still a Menshevik, and others, which opposed the war and urged the workers refuse to work or fight for the old uh, regime, and uh, a general strike principle was to be issued, Lenin formulated the minority doctrine of revolutionary defeatism. Socialists, he argued, should bring about... And I, by the way, I sent this to a few of my uh, friends earlier because I just... In light of recent events of what's going on in the United States, this sentence was very true for me. Socialists, he argued, should work to bring about the defeat of their own country. He meant this literally. And thereby, quote, turn the imperialist war into a civil war. Rather than counsel draft resistance, socialists should encourage workers to join the military and turn the armies red by promoting mutinies. Although these views were seen as divisive by the Marxist majority at Zimmerwald, Lenin was hewing more closely to the spirit of Eugen Potter's socialist anthem, The Internationale, which endorsed the army mutiny, and this is how it goes. The kings intoxicate us with gunsmoke, peace between ourselves, war on the tyrants. Let us bring the strike to the armies fire in the air and break the ranks. If they insist these cannibals on making us into heroes, they'll know how soon enough that our bullets are for our own generals. So the explosion, uh, so explosive was Lenin's Zimmerwald left doctrine that when Consul Romberg explained it to the Berlin Foreign Office, the Berlin Foreign Office actually intervened to quash the publication of Lenin's program, lest the Akronai use it to justify the mass arrests of socialists in Russia. In Zurich, in the Zurich Volkhaus on January 9th or the 22nd of the Julian, Lenin tells a youth socialist gathering that, quote, we old timers may not live to see the decisive battles of the coming revolution. Lenin first learned of the revolution from an Austrian comrade on March the 14th of the Julian. Elated, he wished to return to Petrograd at once, although to avoid the Western and Eastern fronts, the shortest and safest pass from Switzerland to Russia required crossing Germany, which might look suspicious to Russians coming back home. Romberg, the German consul in Bern, was eager to help, but both he and Lenin needed to proceed carefully. A Swiss socialist named Fritz Platten acted as middleman, 
handling all negotiations between Lenin and the Swiss and German governments, purchasing all tickets and acting as official host and spokesman while the train crossed Germany so that no Russians would have to speak with German officials. For added camouflage, Plotin also stipulated that Lenin and his 19 Bolshevik associates, which included Zinoviev, Lenin's wife, Nadezda, and his mistress, Inessa Armand, and the chain-smoking Polish-Jewish journalist Karl Radek, be accompanied on one train by Julius Martov, the old Menshevik leader. If you'll remember, he actually was the guy who stormed out initially at the creation of the Mensheviks. Uh, yeah. and six non-Bolshevik members of the Jewish Bund, which you'll remember was the, basically the German socialist Menshevik party. Right. So, wait a second. Um, Lenin has oh, both yeah. his oh, yeah. wife and oh, yeah. his mistress you heard right. on the same train. You heard right. You heard right. That is a ballsy move. Oh, yeah. He's a ballsy guy. <laughs> <laughs> really, one thing you cannot take away from him was that he was clearly a ballsy guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So Platon also, <laughs> also tried but failed to enlist socialist revolutionary exiles. None of these more patriotic Russians wished to be associated with Lenin. The most important condition related to extraterritoriality, with the story put out on the press wires that Lenin's train car was sealed and would not open its doors while crossing Germany. On April 5th of 1917, the German government appropriated 5 million gold marks for revolutionizing Russia, and four days later, Lenin was sent on his way. Try though everyone did to sell the idea of a trained, uh, of a, a sealed train car, the story sprang leaks almost immediately. The Russians had to switch trains after crossing the Swiss frontier, meaning that they did set foot on German soil at Gottmadingen. <laughs> <laughs> that was bad. At, Once wait, aboard, yeah. Say it again. You know what? I'm gonna type it out for you. G O T T M A D I N G E N. Gottmedingen. Can you send it in the chat? Gottmedingen. Yeah, sure. I'll send it in the chat. Gottmedingen. <laughs> this is probably ah, all right. So I think. Ah, yes. <laughs> I, 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 I think. This would be pronounced Gutsmadingen. Or uh, Gutsmadingen. Gutsmadingen. Okay, there you go. Once aboard the new <laughs> train, they were accompanied by two German officers, Captain von Planitz and Lieutenant von Böhring, who both answered directly to, to General Erich Ludendorff at high German command. A third German, a trade union official named Wilhelm Janssen, or Janssen, uh, answered to Carson. Also joined the Russians. Uh, also joined the Russians at Gottmadingen. <laughs> we also know from German <laughs> that the Russian delegation missed its connection in Frankfurt, necessitating a long stopover there between trains. That in a fourth, that a fourth German. All right, so this is another part of it. A fourth German, who was quote an officer in civilian clothing, visited Lenin's train car while it passed through Berlin. Another fact that the train car stopped there for 20 hours and was resupplied with food and fresh milk, and another fact, that this second delay forced the Russians to spend an entire night in a German hotel in Sassnitz while waiting for their next ferry to Denmark. So, according to sworn testimony, and also here's another fact, according to sworn testimony of Russian prisoners of war repatriated from Germany after the revolution, the reasons that Lenin's train car stopped in Germany were not so innocuous. Along with Lenin's support for Ukrainian separatism, uh, Lenin's train passed overnight through a small city called 
Strausen, which had a lot of Ukrainian minority in it. It was common uh-huh. knowledge in the Strausen camp. Tishkin, Tishkin is uh, uh, the, the captain who witnesses this, who makes the report. Tishkin testifies under oath that Lenin gets off the train while crossing through Germany to give political speeches in the town. Whatever the truth of these specific allegations, the thrust of Germany's Russia, Germany's Russia policy in 1917 was obviously unmistakable. Socialist exiles of all stripes, except for the pro-war SR defensists who sought help from the Allies instead, were dispatched at German expense into Russia to exacerbate tensions between the Soviet and provisional governments. In this flood, the discontented humanity pouring into Soviet Russia, Lenin was but a single individual. But the extremity of his views on the war and his opportunistic embrace of Ukrainian separatism, Lenin was the critical catalyst of chaos, a one-man demolition crew set to wreck Russia's war effort. Lenin was much more stark raving mad than the rest of Russia's socialists. The German investment in Lenin paid off dividends. After a brief stopover in Stockholm where Lenin's friend Karl Radek set up a Bolshevik foreign mission to handle communications with Lenin in Petrograd, the Russian exiles traveled by train according to Petrograd's Finland station just past 11 p.m. on April 3rd in a train car later encased in glass to commemorate the historic moment, and it still remains there to this day. Whisked away to Bolshevik Party headquarters, Lenin launches into a fiery two-hour speech denouncing, quote, the piratical imperialist war, along with the party backsliders who had offered to support the provisional government still fighting it. The program Lenin proposed was so extreme that a third-party organ, Pravda, initially did not want to print it. It was basically Pravda's like... The state newspaper becomes the state newspaper, but it's basically the Soviet publication in Petrograd right now. Within hours... um, Yeah, go ahead. I've I've heard about Pravda, probably because there was some um, controversy around it a while ago because Elon Musk did a thing with it. Uh, But isn't Pravda Russian for truth? Yes, it is. Yeah, it is. (laughs) Uh, I mean... How, remember, how... To be fair, it was created like at this time, so they probably really did think they were <laughs> telling some truth. How, how obvious can you be if you're like, yeah, we're the truth newspaper? I don't know, man. Like, don't fuck we, off. Don't fuck we advocate here. for the one? <laughs> don't we advocate for the one liberty position? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, these. Uh, so basically he does his speech, he gets published in Pravda, they didn't want to print it first because it was so extreme. These April theses are best remembered today for their slogan, all power to the Soviets. But they were equally extreme on foreign policy and disavowed any support of the war and advocated the abolition of the Russian army. Within hours, Lenin's extreme radical and pacifist program was the talk of Petrograd as Frank Golder, if you remember Frank Golder, uh, the American journalist who was in St. Petersburg uh, during the time of the original Russian Revolution, and I think he was there in 05 as well. Uh, he records in his diary, along with the rumor that Germany had sent him to Petrograd, so that, quote, he and his party might preach pacifism and bring about a demoralization. As an exile who had scarcely set foot in Russia for 17 years, Lenin had been free to devise a policy line unconstrained by concern for comedy with fellow Russian socialists or other practical considerations. Maybe I should say comedy. That probably with my accent sounds like comedy. Comedy. 
His perspective on the war thus differed from the Bolsheviks who had stayed in Russia, such as Lev Kamenin and Yosef Stalin, who both, amnest both who were amnestied from Siberian exile after the February Revolution. Uh, both Stalin and Kamenev uh, were in favor of the war uh, and offered qualified support for the provisional government and the war against demoralizing influence of socialist revolutionary defeatism against comrade Lenin's criticism. Stalin, quite a bit less polite, uh, denounces Lenin's down with the war slogan as useless in Pravda. In the sense <laughs> Lenin's April theses were voted down soundly by 13 to 2. Lenin, however, had an ace to play. German money. After uh, Lenin's arrival, the Bolsheviks purchased a private printing press on the Suranovsky Prospect for 250,000 rubles, which is equivalent to just around $12.5 million today. Whoa! After promising the owner that they would retain the experienced staff at full pay, an expense of more than 30,000 rubles, or the current equivalent of 1.5 oh sorry yeah of 1.5 million each or 18 million per year this last stipulation was critical to overcome the owner's reluctance as he was suspicious of how a shadowy group styling itself as workers printing collective had been ready to have that kind of cash on hand the bolsheviks could now print propaganda in virtually unlimited quantities the circulation of pravda quickly ratcheted up 85,000 after, uh, on April 15th, the party launched a new broadsheet, Soldatskaya Pravda, which I guess you can imagine what that means, addressing to soldiers in the Petrograd garrison. It was, in the, it was the, an initial circulation of 50,000, then 75,000. Editions aimed at frontier soldiers uh, and sailors in the Baltic fleet soon followed, so they all had their, these, they all had their own publications. So the frontline soldiers had a specific newspaper that was called Okapnaya Pravda, and the Baltic Fleet had its own newspaper that was called Golos Pravdi. <laughs> Special pamphlets were also printed in the hundreds of thousands. In, the, in light of this stunning publication coup made, germ, made possible by German subsidies, it is unsurprising that Lenin was ultimately allowed, despite the loudest obligation, obliga, uh, objections from Stalin, to publish the still unpopular anti-war platform in Pravda. Because so many files were later destroyed by the Soviet government, historians faced the difficult task of tracing the money trail between the German government and the Bolsheviks in Petrograd. Lenin kept his own hands pretty clean, except for a few suggestive telegrams to uh, Radek in Stockholm, one of which uh, on April 21st he uh, acknowledged he received 2,000 rubles. I can't get for you how much that is, but it just, I think it's a lot. <laughs> I think it's a solid amount of cash. So basically, Bolshito, he's getting paid. He's getting his money, lots of cash, and he's, and he's doing it, genius things. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't it interesting that basically one of the original communists in Lenin was fucking minted? <laughs> yeah, he was. He was totally bankrolled by the German German government. Now, of course, this is Lenin and his success, right? This wasn't the right. Bolsheviks, it wasn't the anarchists, it wasn't the, the most of the socialist revolutionaries. It was Lenin's whole platform was bankroll. So, yeah. not to diss communism, you know, that great system. But it, this is, <laughs> the whole thing is usurped very quickly by Lenin. Whether people liked it or yeah. not, he had cash. He had lots of cash. Yeah, fair enough. 
So after after years of living hand to mouth in the Russian underground, the Bolsheviks were flush, and they acted like it. After arriving, I'm telling you, this guy was a baller. After arriving at Finland Station, Lenin moved into the Kesh. Give me, I'm gonna really trick because I this one goes up several times. Chesinskaya Mansion, one of the Chesinskaya. That's what I'm gonna say. One of the grandest residences in the city, built in the Art Nouveau style in 1904 to 1906, for Matthild Chesinskaya. <laughs> I'm gonna record it in post. I'm just gonna record it one time and just replay my my voice over it. Let's look it up. <laughs> everybody can see what it looks like, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, can you send it to me in chat? I will send it so to that you. I can do my own attempt. Okay. <clears throat> God, it's really hard. Uh, in the chat, or for everybody listening, it is spelled K S H E S I N S K A Y A. So check that out. Search that up. Mansion. Oh, yeah. Damn, that thing is popping. Look at this thing. Wow. So this is the mansion. That Lenin with all his German money buys. It's gorgeous. Nice. Very cool. <laughs> all right. I'm going to look he, that up. So he buys it. Uh, the most. Uh, it was originally created by the most famous ballerina in Russia, Mathild Keshinskaya, uh, who was also the mis- a mistress to Tsar Nicholas and two Romanov Grand Dukes after him. So this woman was balling out in her own respect. Um, the mansion cited... Right. The mansion I could uh, live there. strategically opposite the Peter and Paul fortress was transformed after Lenin's arrival from an elegant ballerina's home into a fortified military compound, the nerve center of Bolshevism, and it was renamed the Museum of the Revolution in Soviet times and is today named the Museum of Political History. <laughs> Cheskinskaya was a beehive of activity hosting meetings of the party's central committee, the editorial offices of Pravda, and Soldatskaya Pravda, and the headquarters of the Bolshevik military organization, which sent commissars to recruit army units to the anti-war cause. At the street level, the scene was even more striking. Chesinskaya was soon to was was soon the meeting place for demonstrators all over the city, who came for the excitement and the signs and the protest signs and all that shit. Uh, the Bolsheviks' uh, skill for uh, propaganda was very, very real, uh, and it was given further shine in the arm by Lenin's no-holds-barred political program, whereas in the Mensheviks and Socialist Revolutionaries and the Soviets had agreed reluctantly to collaborate in restoring discipline of the armies, Bolsheviks churned out placards simply proclaiming, Down with the government! According to some witnesses, after Lenin's arrival, Bolshevik plat- uh, placards appeared stating, The Germans are our brothers! With German armies on Russian soil, such slogans were explosive, if not treasonous. Rumors were already circulating that Lenin was a German agent. In such circumstances, it is remarkable that anyone would hold up such placards. Lenin and his German sponsors were playing for keeps. The provisional government, under terrible pressure from allies to carry out the spring offensive in Russia, had promised to undertake before the revolution even while locked in a bitter struggle for the Soviet over the control of the army, now had another enemy to reckon with. And it would not take long before the Bolsheviks drew blood. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> there you go. <sighs> there it is. So, Lenin, bankrolled, 
making moves. We will see how successful he is. What does he have to do, basically? He's got to disarm the provisional government. He's got to get the Mensheviks on his side. And he's got to deal with an an upticking uh, anarchist problem that we'll talk about in, like I suspect, probably the final episode of this. But we'll see. Who knows, man? (laughs) I mean, they've been doing very good, so... I don't mind if you if we extend this to like ten episodes. <laughs> we may need to, dude, because I <laughs> actually have more notes for this episode, but I'm just gonna save them because it just goes into the whole relationship between Kerensky and Rajanko and blah blah blah. It's like it's just a lot. It's head it's head spinning. So yeah. what I think we will do next is talk about Lenin's big moves. Uh, how. He gets Trotsky on his side. We'll talk about Trotsky, probably. Uh, and yeah. we'll put it together from there. And then we got to talk about... <sighs> I guess we're going to have to do the Bolshevik Revolution, but that'll be, have to be considered a separate series, more or less. <laughs> because technically, it's a different revolution. You know, the, the Bolsheviks right now, as you can see, they haven't revolted. There's a revolt going yeah. on right now. And they're not revolting. Yeah. It's all of them. So maybe we'll have to do another 10 episodes just on the Bolsheviks. <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I mentioned this uh, a while ago to you and Paz. Mm. Um, there's some stuff I have to wrap up, wrap up with both of you. Mm. Uh, so, if I wrap up the Russian Revolution with you, and then the long hot summer of 1967, I believe it is with Paz. Mm. Then first, I want to record with the two of you. An episode on the history of the Spanish Inquisition. Mm. And then, when we've done that, <laughs> we can talk about the Bolsheviks. Or about the Bolshevik Revolution. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Good. So, that's like another 50 bonus episodes down the line. <laughs> I realized that what you've basically done is you've, con- you've, you've made me an indentured servant. Um, yes. <laughs> To a contract that kept having addendums added to it as we as we went through it. <laughs> that's okay. That, that, that's what makes you a real libertarian. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I don't enslave people. I just trick them into working for me forever, for free. And then they die. <laughs> <laughs> At 40. <laughs> I'm the stress. Ah, well, I hope... What, what did you learn today, Bullshito? Let's oh, Christ. I, I learned that I need to extend my expe- uh, my, my uh, concentration span. Ah, it is a lot, right? It's a lot. It is. Like, oh, holy fuck. There's so yeah. much information here. Like, yeah. how am I ever going to keep track? So basically, uh, if, if you could take anything away from it, Dmitry Rajanko, who we know about already, Dmitry Rajanko is the leader of the Duma. Basically, think of him as the prime minister in your country. Yes. He's not, or yeah, because the pres in your country, do you have a president and a prime minister? Yeah, we have a prime minister. Oh, you do. You have a king. Yes. So the king's job is the king has one official role in your government, which is he can ask the prime minister to resign. Is that the case? Um. I'm not sure if he can ask the Prime Minister to resign, I don't think so, uh, but his job is basically to uh, approve or disapprove laws that have been 
So, all right. Uh, so, yeah. So, basically, at this point, the Tsar did the very same thing. But now, right. if you think about it, Dmitry Rodchenko, who was already the prime minister, you know, basically the guy who does all the political stuff, and it's just the king yeah. who technically holds the sovereignty of law, so that he has to say yes or no, but he really doesn't ever say no. Yeah. Um, but okay. anyway, so that was the relationship that was already building. Now, basically, with the abdication of Michael, Rojanko's got both powers. Rojanko's right. got both prime ministerial power and presidential power. He's basically, you could view him as the equivalent of an American president. Uh, that he still has to go through his Congress and blah, 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 but there's a lot less checks and balances now that there's no czar. Because remember, the Octoberists, they created a manifesto that incorporated the czar. So now that the czar's right. gone, they don't have a manifesto much either. Uh, that's the first thing you need to remember. So Rajanko's making his moves to try and take over uh, control of the government via the Duma, which he is the state representative of. I don't remember what the official term is, but he's the highest guy there, most seniority. Secondarily, as all of this is happening, Russia's in World War II, or one rather, and the Ottomans are realizing, hey, they have a lot of socialist problems, and the Bosphorus, which is where Constantinople is, as you know, if you remember from our previous episode, twice before, the Bosphorus was shut, and that did major damage to Russia. Well, the Ottomans know this isn't going to happen again. Uh, they're coming for us, and that is in fact the case. We'll find out on the next episode. You'll start to see some of the socialists are actually campaigning to go to war with the Ottomans to take the Bosphorus. Uh, you know, under this weird ploy that they want to reunite the Austrians with the, the Ukrainians, or whatever the hell that means. Uh, we'll explain that all next time. Finally, you have to remember... So not only is Rajanko moving from the interior government, trying to take the whole thing over and trying to get all the armies on his side from the exterior, two things are happening. Uh, the Ottomans are going, Oh, we got to put pressure on them militarily. The Germans are doing that too. But also the third thing you need to remember, the Germans have the ace in the hole here, the Bolshevik leader. They got Lenin. They bankroll Lenin. Lenin is sent from Switzerland, through the Swiss frontier, through Germany, up to Denmark, into Finland, and down from Finland Station. Eventually, he arrives in Petrograd. Uh, so those are the three things you got to take away, those three events. Um, and those three events, are they all happened in the same year. <laughs> they all had tremendous impacts on the country. And uh, I need more water. I so know how you feel. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, th hopefully that's what we take away so that we can remember those things for the next episode. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> Man, all right. Uh, thank you again for uh, coming on to the No Real Communist uh, yeah. podcast. Experience. And <laughs> um, please give me all of your plugs. Okay. I usually don't do it serious, but I have a serious thing. Uh, so I went on uh, Free Man Beyond the Wall, my boy Pete. Uh, we did a whole two-hour, somewhat minute episode on uh, Deleuze and on basically uh, control systems and politics and the state and where we are at in light of recent events. Uh, so go check that out on his show, Free Man Beyond the Wall. Then check me out at CarCampit uh, on Twitter and uh, check out my podcast at the Rollo and Slappy Show. So, <laughs> all right. Um, then I'll add my plugs in here too. Um, you can find me on Twitter under uh, fuck, what's my username again? Uh, 
give me one real quick second here and like edit this. Uh-huh. Right, yeah. You can, yeah, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter under the uh, at at Gonzo zero one two o one, um, and uh, my podcast is known as the um, No Real Agorist or Agorist or Agorist uh, show run by uh, me being at Gonzo uh, at 01201 and at Ace Arcist. Um, so there you go. I just noticed something. I just, as as you were doing that, I was Googling uh, on Wikipedia. There's apparently a thing called the Friends of Soviet Russia. The Friends huh. of Soviet Russia was formally established in the United States on August 9th of twenty uh, of nineteen twenty one, as an offshoot of the American Labor Alliance for Trade Relations in Soviet Russia, it was launched as a mass organization dedicated to raising funds for the relief of the extreme famine that swept through Soviet Russia in nineteen twenty one, both in terms of food and clothing, and immediate amelioration of the crisis and agricultural tools and equipment for the reconstruction of Soviet agriculture. I don't know why I looked that up, but Friends of the Soviet Union—that's going to be the next podcast name. <laughs> you should invite those guys. I will. I swear. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> I love it. All right. Uh, thank you again for coming on, and we will speak uh, hopefully quite soon. Squaw.